0: And pursuing holiness and obedience to Jesus because they totally believe what he says. Belief affects our behavior. And Paul said exactly the same right at the beginning of Titus, the book that we are continuing to go through. So verse 1 of Titus 1, which is up here, I'm just going to reference it, says this. This is Paul speaking. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those that God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth. That's right belief that shows them how to live godly lives. That's right belief, behavior, sorry. Paul was saying if you believe the right thing, you will behave the right way because God never asks his people to do anything before he tells them what he has done for them. He never asks us to behave in a certain way until he tells us truth about who he is and what he has done and the text that we're looking at today in my opinion is one of the central pivots of Titus this book to Titus because it's the belief that undergirds all of the behavior that Titus has been informed to instruct the church with so if you remember lots of Titus we've been looking at has been to instruct the older women to, uh, men to do this older women to do this how to live but it's based on the truth of how we are to, uh, what we are to believe. It's the reason that the recipients of the letter were instructed to live as they were. And so today we're going to be looking primarily at verse 7 of chapter 3 in Titus. But we need to start in verse 3 before we get to verse 7 because the preceding verses are the foundation for the incredible truth that we see in verse 3. So we're going to start uh, reading verse 3. This probably, in my opinion, is one of the crown jewels of the Bible in terms of truth Commentators say this is perhaps the most concise summary of the gospel in the whole of the Bible. So let's start at verse 3. It is stunning. Richard talked about it last week. I'm going to continue talking about this week. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. It is an utterly stunning passage in the scripture. And before we jump into this verse 7, I think it's really important for us to note that in this passage, Paul is pointing to the double-pronged work of God in salvation. We've been singing about it this morning. That salvation has two components. First is the work of justification. It says here, God saved us not because of the righteous things he, we had done but because of his mercy. We have been justified by his grace. That is the work of of justification which we're going to think about this morning so I'm going to expand that in a minute but last week so we've got justification as the first kind of element of salvation but secondly which was what Richard was ta- talking about last week is this word sanctification of being changed that's the work of the spirit in us through rebirth and regeneration the Bible often uses this word called sanctification, where we are being changed by God's power at work in us. And both of these works, justification and sanctification, are inseparable and they are simultaneous. They happen at the same time. When God draws us to himself, he never does one without the other. Because if he was simply to justify us, and give us the righteousness of Christ, we're going to talk about that in a minute, we'd be left without power. So if we had right standing but no power, what can you do? But if we were filled with power without the truth of knowing we've been justified, we wouldn't live with the joy and freedom of the status that has been declared over us. So there's a table if we're going to put up here. I hope this will be helpful. So justification means that God declares us righteous through the sin-bearing death of his son. He pronounces over his people not guilty. We have the righteousness of Christ accounted to us. That's what it means to be justified. Whereas sanctification, this simultaneous and inseparable work, is the process of being made righteous of being changed through the power of the spirit at work in us it's being conformed to the likeness of christ so just like you pour jelly into a mold and the jelly takes on the mold of whatever receptacle you've put it into the spirit of god is molding us to become like Christ. That's the work of sanctification. Justification means a new status, whereas sanctification means new life. Both are required, both are inseparable. Think of their work a little bit like the work of a lawyer versus the work of a surgeon. So for a lawyer, they work for the legal status of someone. They work for the ability to be able to declare over that person not guilty. Whereas a surgeon works internally. They have the ability to change the internal structure of somebody. They work on a patient's internal status. Justification is about the judgment of God in respect to us, our standing before a holy God Whereas sanctification is about the act of God within us, how he is changing us. When God saves, he doesn't leave us where we are, condemned in our sin, and neither does he leave us as we are, without any power. It is stunning truth that Paul is pointing out in this passage. If you take nothing else away today, Know that justification and sanctification are working together that you will be declared righteous and then being made righteous. But today we are concentrating on this uh, phrase about being justified. So verse seven, if we could have that back up would be helpful. It says "So that or we've just heard about the mercy of love and love of Christ, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become. Heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So the Bible uses this term justified a lot, and it's a legal term that originated from law courts of justice. So to justify someone meant to declare them not guilty. So if someone was taken into a law court, accused of a crime, and they are tried and found to be not guilty they can be declared justified. But what about the heavenly courts of justice? Because the story of your life and my life is not not guilty before a holy God. In fact, if God was to pronounce over us on our own a judgment over how we live, he would pronounce the very opposite. Guilty. Because the problem of sin before a holy God has been common to every man and every woman since just after the creation of the world. The Bible recounts that when God created the world, he created man and woman to be in relationship with him, to rule and reign according to his definition of good and evil. But man and woman, Adam and Eve, in that first garden, instead of being in relationship with God, chose to rival God. And when we look at verse 3 of Titus, we see a story of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were foolish. They were disobedient. They were deceived and they were enslaved by their own passions. They were deceived by a snake and they had a desire for their own pleasure And the fallout of that disobedience has been upon every person ever born. Starting from Cain and Abel who were the two sons of of Adam and Eve. But their children and their children and their children down to you and I who live in a world that is corrupted by sin. Sin means to miss the mark of God's standard. And not only is it applicable to us as individuals, but we live in a world that is marred by sin. It's like the n- nature of the world that we live in. Sin has tarnished absolutely everything and everyone we see around us, including you and I. If we're honest before a holy God who is pure in every way, Our attitudes stink before him and our actions condemn us. Truth is, we're sinful by nature. You only have to look at children to see that. And we're sinful by choice. We choose to disobey God. But the Bible says this, that there is no one righteous. Not even one. There's no one righteous. And just as no amount of good works that a contrite criminal might do in order to repay the loss that a victim of crime feels, neither can you or I ever compensate before a holy God. No amount of good works will ever compensate for our wrongdoing. We are in a deep pit that we cannot climb out of ourselves. We need a rescuer. We need someone to come down into the pit and lift us out. Just last week, I read in the uh, news, the sad news, that one of the young guys who had been rescued from the Thai cave disaster in 2018 had suddenly died. You know, when those boys found themselves stuck in that pit, there was nothing they could do to get themselves out. They needed someone to come in and rescue them. They needed an outside source. And we are in the same position with our sin. But if we go to verse 4, we've just looked at the dreadful state. Verse 3. This is what life is like. But verse 4 says this. But, and here are the blue flashing lights of the rescue team on its way. When the kindness and love of God appeared... That's Jesus. Yeah. Jesus is the kindness and love of God appearing. He's the person of God in man. God in the person of Jesus. He saved us. No, who's doing the saving? He, Jesus is doing the saving. Paul is telling the readers, telling us the source of salvation. God has been manif- made manifest to a broken world in the person of his son. You see, sin against a holy God has a price. All justice has a price. Sin needs paying for, and that includes your sin and my sin. Our sin against a holy God must be punished. So either we pay for it when we die, or we need someone to pay for it on our behalf. The problem is that no person is pure enough to be able to pay for our sin. None of us could pay for it, because we're part of the problem. But our rescue team is God himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's their collaboration, it's their mercy mission, which we've been singing about this morning, that is the hope for all mankind. It's their kindness, it's their love that has stepped in. So, in the kindness of the Father, He sends His Son, who, unlike you and I, never did any wrong, unlike you and I, was always making perfect choices, who was always just who was always righteous, who had a perfect standing before God the Father. According to his own mercy, he saved us, not because of anything you or I have ever done, but Jesus paid the price for sin by crucifixion upon a Roman cross, the most gruelling of deaths. He was sent to the cross by God the Father himself. And in that place, he took upon himself all our sin. It's like he gathered up all the sin of all the world and took it into his body so that on the cross, through his death, he might pay the price. He would take the punishment for you and I. Jesus took our sin And in exchange, he gave us his righteousness. Jesus took your and my wrongdoing, missing the mark of God's standard every time. And in exchange, he accounts to us the righteousness of Christ. So that by faith, by anyone who believes in the work and person of Jesus Christ, they might be declared this, justified. They might stand before a holy God the declaration of not guilty over their life. As the Bible says, that we who are sinful might become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. And being justified is more than just being forgiven, it's about being given Christ's righteousness. It's to have the righteousness of Christ accounted to us. It's not a neutral status. It's like a totally favorable status. Our sin is accounted to Christ. We give it away and in exchange we get the righteousness of Christ accounted to us. There's a slide going to go up here. When you put your faith in Christ, your spiritual account is not just wiped clean. It's then some. It's got the righteousness of Christ. When you are justified, your spiritual account goes through the roof. Not just zero, it's through the roof, the benefits of the righteousness of Christ. All your debts have been cancelled, along with all your liability for future punishment. There is no punishment coming your way. You are in credit with the righteousness of Christ. And the outrage of the gospel is that God is willing to justify the ungodly. The vilest offender who truly believes. That moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Justification teaches us that God cloaks us in a robe of righteousness before before we do anything good in response to him. Justification teaches us that we are clothed in a robe of righteousness before any of our character or our ways change. It's like righteousness is a cloak that conceals our sinfulness. I was thinking about this and thinking how Muslim women who wear a burqa, you cannot see anything of what they're wearing underneath, what their clothing is like. That is like the righteousness of Christ. When we are accredited the righteousness of Christ, you cannot see anything. God cannot see anything of our sinfulness or mess underneath. We are clothed in him. It covers up all of our rubbish and all of our sin. We are given a new status before God, justified long before anything in us can change. That moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. It's just like when someone marries. From the moment they're declared husband and wife, while they might feel the same, everything about their status has changed. Their rights have changed. The moment we trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior by faith Everything about our status before our holy God changes. It's utterly stunning. You might not feel any different, just like you don't feel different when you've just got married. But everything before our holy God changes. Christ is now your righteousness. He enables you to have a right standing before God. It's an outrageous and actually an utterly offensive truth. We like it applied to ourselves. Think of the vilest offender you can think of. If in a moment they put their trust in Jesus, this is what scripture teaches. In that moment, a pardon they've received. The righteousness of Christ is given to them. And for us, it's an outrageous, but surely a totally liberating truth. If we are to believe this truth of what Christ has done for us. And whilst I know the majority in this room will know this truth. It's a truth that we must keep revisiting. A, because we forget. And B, because if we let it keep seeping into our hearts. It will change how we behave. Because belief affects behavior. So we have been justified By his grace. I want to look very quickly at what it means to be heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And if you note in verse 7, it says, so having been justified by grace, that's past tense. This is something that Christ has done. We might become heirs, that's present. So God is interested in our past. He's also interested in the here and now. We become heirs, having the hope, that's future having the hope of eternal life. Paul is addressing past, present, and future assurance of who we are. And heirs are recipients. They're recipients. They're inheritors. They receive from others. So if you're an heir to an estate, then on that person's death, you will receive everything that they have uh, put aside to you in their will. But what do you and I receive as... Yeah, I'm just looking at somebody who's very good at thinking about... um, he writes will, so a little plug there. Um, but what do you and I receive for those who are justified by the blood of Christ as heirs? Well, it's literally everything that belongs to Jesus. If it belongs to Jesus, then it belongs to us as his heirs because we are hidden in him, because we're hidden in his righteousness. So we get Whatever happens to Jesus, think of it like this. I've got a card here. If I put this in my Bible, everything that happens to this Bible happens to the postcard in here. So if I drop this in a puddle, not only does the Bible get dropped in, but my postcard gets dropped in. If I wrap this up and send it to one of my daughters in Birmingham, not only do they get the Bible, they get the postcard. If I take this Bible to a prayer meeting, along comes the postcard with me. Likewise, because we are justified, because we are hidden in Christ, because Christ's righteousness has been accredited to us, because we are cloaked in his righteousness, all that happens to him is ours, because we are hidden in him. All that's been accomplished has been given to us. All that's been accomplished by him and for him is now ours. All that the love that the Father lavishes on the Son is ours because we're hidden in him. You know, because sin has no power over Jesus, it doesn't over you and I because we're hidden in him. Because Jesus is his Son, he's a a child of God, and we're hidden in him, so are we. We've been singing about this morning. Because Jesus has intimate relationship with God the Father, so do we. We have proximity because Jesus does too. Because Jesus has every spiritual blessing, so do you and I. Because death has no power over Jesus, doesn't over you and I, because we're hidden in him. Because Jesus is going to live with the Father forever, so will you and I. Being an heir is the most incredible news. It's about inheriting all that belongs to Christ. And it's also about receiving the life of Christ in us. It's the work of sanctification which we talked about right at the beginning. That because Christ's power is in us or we are in him, that power that raised him from the dead belongs to us too. He is at work in us. And we don't have to wait until we die to inherit this. We can have it now because Christ has died. He's risen again. He's now ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. But in his death, he released this glorious inheritance to his people. The truth is that justification brings into the now what is true of our future. So justification declares what's true that's going to happen in the future into our everyday lives. As heirs, we know what's coming. We know our freedom. We can enjoy that freedom right here and now. It brings forward into the present world the verdict on our lives, which belongs at the final judgment. We can live in freedom now, knowing that on the final day, we will be declared not guilty. It gives us freedom now to live. It brings the truth of the age to come of eternal life into our everyday reality today. Heirs have the hope of eternal life. It's a birthright of ours. Eternal life that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. And it's kept in heaven by the best keeper of all things, God himself. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Because eternal life is ultimately about living in communion With God. It's the restoration of the order of the Garden of Eden about being in relationship, walking closely with God. And often in the Bible, eternal life is used as a future kind of declaration, which is true, but it's more to do with the quality of life than it is to do with quantity. We think about it in quantity of life. But actually eternal life is about a quality of life. It's more that than it is about length of life and longevity. When Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and life in all its fullness, that's what he was talking about. That I've come that you might have a quality of life now that runs through your death and into the ages to come. So when we start singing things like, your presence is heaven to me, It's more than, oh, your presence is like a fluffy feeling. It's truth. Your presence is a taste of heaven to me now. We can taste heaven now when we know the communion and presence of God with us. Whilst we must also recognize, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that we only see in part. We We see like in a mirror dimly. What we experience of the presence of God is beautiful. It's a taste of heaven, but it's only in part. It's like seeing in a mirror dimly. It's like a muted version of what we're going to enjoy in God's presence. But one day, when Christ returns, we will see fully, says Paul. One day, we will see him face to face. It's a living Hope. It's the hope of eternal life. He's taken care of our past. We have been justified. He takes care of our presence. We have become heirs. And he's concerned and has assured us of our future. We have the hope of eternal life. You know, I said right at the beginning when I started speaking that what we believe affects how we behave. Terry Virgo says this in his book, God's Lavish Grace. You will never reign in life and be free from the clouds of condemnation if you do not wholeheartedly embrace the free gift of righteousness. Let me repeat that. You will never reign in life and be free from the clouds of condemnation if you do not wholeheartedly embrace the free gift of righteousness. Because the truth of justification affects how we live, how we love, how we worship, how we serve. It affects our joy, our obedience, our peace. But just as justification is this incredible truth and gift of God, we need the Spirit to seal it in our hearts to bring revelation. When Paul says to the church in Ephesus, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, that you would know the hope. It's interesting, he doesn't say, I pray that the eyes of your mind would be enlightened, that you would have intellectual assent to this truth. He says, I want you to know this deep in your heart. The heart is the seat of our emotions. It's the wellspring of life. It's from what we operate Paul wants the church in Ephesus to know this. I think Paul would want the church in Crete to know this, that they have been justified as the hope of eternal life. And God has been moving powerfully amongst us as we've gathered this week for a week of prayer. And I know that I need people to pray for me, that I would be strengthened with power through God's Spirit in my inner being, because I am forgetful, I forget this truth. I so want this to be so deeply ingrained in me that it totally changes how I behave. I'm guessing the majority of us in this room want the same. You want this belief to be so deeply rooted that it's not something you have to recall to mind, but it just lives in you, just like you stop at the edge of the road because you know it's dangerous to walk out with an ongoing car that actually the truth of justification of what has been declared over us by faith might flow out of us in everything we do. And so this morning I want to invite you to come and be prayed for. We're going to invite deacons and our pastoral team and life group leaders to come out and pray. But if you know three things, perhaps you've never before put your trust in Jesus... You'd say, I don't know that the righteousness of Christ has been credited to me. We would love you to come this morning. If you want to put your trust in Jesus, would you let the person who prays with you know? They will talk through with you. The moment that you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, a pardon has been received. It is outrageous, but many of us in this room have experienced that and live in the good of it. Perhaps, though, you feel like you know this truth. You know it, but you would recognize in your own life that actually it's not producing obedience in you. It's not producing freedom or a lightness or a joy. We would just love to pray for you this morning, that you would have a fresh revelation. It's God that gives us revelation. It's the Spirit that does it in our hearts. You'd come forward, we pray for you, that actually as you leave this meeting, you would know, you would know that you have been justified. Or maybe the third category is that you know this to be true and you recognize it to be true, but actually you've started to try and earn God's favor. And I tell you how we recognize things like that, because we feel condemned. We've not read our Bible. We've not prayed. Actually, those are signs that we're no longer depending on the righteousness of Christ, but trying to earn God's favor maybe you're struggling to forgive because you don't think well they can't be forgiven they they're not worth it that's probably a sign that we've stopped receiving and enjoying the righteousness of Christ that's been accredited to us because we think well I need to earn it so they need to earn it perhaps you're feeling guilt that probably means that the truth of justification that the righteousness of Christ not your own works is at work in you. And so I want to invite us all to stand. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing another song of incredible truth in Christ alone. But actually, if you would like to be prayed for, you just think, I don't want to leave the same. I don't want this to wash over me. I want this truth to go deeper than I know it's sitting in me. Now, I wonder, would you come forward now? We would love to pray with you. I'm in faith that the Spirit of God is going to meet with us. Please don't feel nervous. No one's come forward, but I don't believe that nobody else in this room, apart from me, wants this truth to go so deeply in them that it changes how they behave to another level. So I want to invite you to come forward as the band starts. We would just love to pray for you. There's space at the front here. We want this truth to shape us and change us. What we believe affects how we behave. We wanna be those that believe this so deeply. The declaration of God over us, not guilty. Do you know that? Do you know in your knowing?